What comes to mind when I say the words devil's advocate? For some of you, you might think of a bad 90s movie with Al Pacino. Remember for a while when Al Pacino was just like, hoo-ah, hoo-ah, and we were like, Al, what happened, man? Uh, but for most of you, you think of just a regular turn of phrase. I, not to play devil's advocate, or let me just play devil's advocate a minute, as if it's something you can slip in and out of. Just, I want to push back on that argument you're making or that idea that you have. Not that I don't believe in it, but let me just play devil's advocate. But did you know that the devil's advocate for hundreds of years was an actual job that someone actually had? It's true. It's, it had to do with canonizing saints. In some traditions, saints are people who are canonized uh, officially. They become saints. You put saint in front of their name, and it's a whole thing. There's this big ecclesiastical process. Uh, if you want to be a saint in that tradition, first thing you have to do is die. Uh, get that out of the way. Five years have to pass so that people can think a little more clearly about you, and then a bishop can nominate you to become a saint. And this has changed over the years, but for centuries and centuries, the main thing was a trial. And at that trial, there would be an advocate for the person to become saint and declare it a saint. And that person would say, they'd have to prove that there would be at least one miracle attributed to them. They'd also have to show that that person lived a life of exemplary virtue and goodness and holiness. And then on the other side would be the devil's advocate who would try and kind of pull the person down and break down the case against them, show them this is why they should not be a saint. Now, if the person did finally kind of come in ahead of the, the curve and on top of the bar, they would eventually be, there's all these steps, you're beatified, you become venerable, eventually you're canonized and you become a saint. And in doing all these things, the devil's advocate is there to make sure that not too many people make the cut and that nobody who shouldn't makes the cut. Because what we're dealing with is the best of the best of the cream of the crop. And we can't have a bunch of people becoming saints. Now, here's a little trivia. In 1983, which for some reason strikes me as a funny year for this to happen, the office of the devil's advocate was actually kind of put to bed. They got rid of it. But in doing so, they started bringing in all these outside skeptics and people to speak against the saint in question because you can't have too many people become saints. And yet, in this book, and as you know, Paul wrote half the New Testament with his letters, and in half of his letters, he actually addresses them to the saints in whatever place he's writing to, even in Corinth. So he's writing to people who aren't yet dead, they're still alive. He's writing to people who haven't really done any miracles for the most part that we know of, and what's more, they're not all the most virtuous of the cream of the crop, spiritually speaking. In fact, when he's writing to Corinth, he's writing to people where there is wickedness going on, where there's infighting going on, and where he's saying, shape up, guys, you're a little bit embarrassing for the church. And yet, he says to the saints in Corinth. And I, I truly love that idea. I love especially the way this begins in Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so excited to go through this book with you. I've been more excited about this than anything I've preached in a very, very long time for a number of reasons. 
But one thing is, is that I think that we tend to hold up the book of Romans as kind of the gold standard of laying out the gospel. Paul's magnum opus, especially in the kind of reformed world I move around in. If, it's like if, you're, if you're reformation oriented, it's Romans. If you're a serious pastor, you've got to spend like 137 years preaching through it verse by verse by verse. And, and the fact is, if we go back to the reformation... And we look at what was the most effective and the most important pivotal books. Luther's favorite book of the New Testament was Galatians, not Romans. And John Calvin's was Ephesians. When Calvin looked at this book we we're going to study, he saw in it very clearly laid out the gospel which frees us and laid out the life that it frees us to live. And I see that as well. And I have been saving this one. You know how some couples will save like a really nice bottle of champagne or, or better yet, you know how when you get curly fries and one of them is extra long and extra springy and you kind of put it aside like that's a, that's what I've been doing with Ephesians. And I, I just had a sense now was the time, a good time to pull it out so we can look at it together and benefit together. And as is the case, obviously, the first sermon in a, in, a, in a series, the first time you open a book like Ephesians, you have to do all the basic information stuff. So let's get that out of the way. When was this written? Probably in about 60 to 61. Uh, this is written when Paul is in prison in Rome. You remember how we preached through and studied through Acts for 21 uh, months? Remember that? That was, a, that was a good one. And as we got to the end, you ended with this sort of low-stakes cliffhanger where Paul is imprisoned but he's under house arrest and he has some freedoms and he's in Rome and there's two years and then the book's just like done and you go well, what will happen next well this gives us a little glimpse of what happened next Paul was writing letters in fact uh, we have four letters that are generally called the prison epistles Ephesians Philippians Colossians and Philemon because they're written at this time in this setting for this purpose this is about Three decades after the Lord Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. It's about five years since the last time Paul visited the Ephesians. Remember, he stayed there for three years, ministering to the people, and the people loved him. And in Acts chapter 20, when he said goodbye to them, they traveled quite a distance to say goodbye. And then it was all hugs and tears and kisses, and you know it was all allowed back then. And so there was a closeness. Now, if you recall... From last September, Ephesus was a commercial center. It was an important city. It was a capital. It was a thriving port. It was a religious center. Remember, there was the Temple of Artemis there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A lot of worship, a lot of disgusting worship of this goddess. Paul got in trouble for kind of cutting into their bottom line. I'm not going to say much more about Ephesus. We're not going to do the deep dive into the city, A, because we just did a few months ago, and B, because it doesn't really seem to matter that much here. He is writing truths that are timeless, not real specific things to real specific situations, it seems. In fact, the words in Ephesus don't even appear in the earliest manuscripts, as a uh, footnote probably tells you in your Bible in front of you. There is a very old reference to what seems to be this same letter in which Marcion says the letter to Laodicea. But he's talking about this letter. It seems that probably what we're dealing with is a letter that was a circular letter, meant to be read and passed around probably throughout all of Asia, if not even wider. And so that would explain for us why, despite being close with the Ephesians, there is none of the 
personal greetings that we normally see, those kind of holy shout-outs and name-drops that Paul tends to do as he is writing to people that he knows. And that this is a book that has wide influence and wide applicability, that we can take it today. I mean, this is true of all of Scripture, but there isn't even much bridging of the context to do here. There's some, but this is a book that is easily just read, grabbed, torn through, chewed up, digested, applied to our lives, and strengthens us together. It's particularly, I think, timely and relevant today for three reasons. First of all, because Paul is writing to a church where it is a lot of division. It's in a world where there's a lot of people turning against each other. People are building up walls between ethnic groups, religious groups, uh, racial groups. And Paul's going to come in and say, I see some of this in the church. And he brings in a sort of sacred wrecking ball and knocks it down and says, we're one in Christ Jesus. Not to say there's no differences, there's not important differences, there's not beautiful differences. But he comes in and says, in those differences, we are all one in Jesus Christ. Secondly, in order to live like that, of course, people need to change. And he exhorts change, tells us to walk a new path with the new heart that we've received from Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful is this letter is written by the guy who is living proof that such a change can happen. And finally, it's relevant because Paul is writing to people in the midst of just this absolute social breakdown and and just disintegration of the Roman world. And, And he's telling them, listen, in the midst of overwhelming darkness, I want you to have hope. And I want you to know that you can have victory. In fact, you already have the victory in Jesus. You just need to grab hold of it. And you need not be afraid. And I think all of these things are things that we need to hear right now. The structure of the book is also very timely. And that's a nerdy thing to say, but let me explain what I mean. The structure is a case study in how theology and life interact in the Bible and how they should interact in the church. We have six chapters. The first three are all about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, and how high and lifted up Jesus must be amongst us. It's all doctrine, it's teaching. This has happened, and God did this on your behalf because God so loved the world. Then the last three chapters begin with the words, Therefore, I exhort you, and they're all practical application. Half and half, but the doctrine comes first as the foundation for how now shall we live. And this is so very important. That this is how we as Christians approach doctrine and life. People want to just rush over to the practical application. Tell me how to live. That's, that's the, the preaching that, that really brings in the crowds, the throngs, or at least you know, used to. Brings them in digitally now, I guess. But, but the kind of, it just says, here's the steps, and then you'll be happy and victorious. Then you'll live life abundant. But when you look at the scriptures, it starts with the doctrine. So we look at God is, therefore we are. God is blank, therefore we must be blank. God is great, therefore we must be humble. God is holy, therefore we must be pure and righteous in his sight. Now the world gets this backwards, and the church has been following along more and more, I think, lately. But the world's been getting it backward from the beginning. Instead we say, we are, I am, therefore God is. I am hungry for that fruit, therefore God is okay with it. We, as a people, 
are tolerant of sin and celebrate it even. Therefore, God must be updated to go along with that and reinforce what we are. Never works. Didn't work in the beginning. Doesn't work now. And what we see is that even when it comes to salvation, we need to make sure we don't get it backwards because it's a temptation, it's a snare, it's a trap we can fall into. We have to remember, God did this, therefore we must do that. God sent His Son to die on a cross and bear our sins and free us. Therefore, we must repent and believe. God saved us by His grace. Therefore, we must live holy lives and walk worthy by way of thanks. You know, every religion gets this backwards. Instead of saying, God saved us, therefore we live like this, it says we live like this so that God will save us. If I follow enough rules, jump through enough hoops, suffer enough, give up enough, God will look at me and say, "Eh, fine, you've earned it. We must read the book of Ephesians through that lens. Three chapters, three chapters, doctrine, and then application. And that is freeing, but it poses a problem in teaching and preaching such a book. Because then you've got, I mean, it takes months to do justice to something like this. And then you go in and you've got three chapters worth of just theology. I'd lose some of you if we just did that. All right, more theology this week. So we're, I'm going to cheat a little and draw biblical application on each text. I promise to do it in keeping with what the book teaches. That's not hard at all. I think the real danger comes when we get to the second half. And we start reading, this is what a Christian marriage should look like. This is how the church should maintain unity. This is how we should live in these different settings. We have to remember it's all rooted in all that doctrine that came before. We can't forget the therefore. And the easiest way to guard against that, the most effective way, is for you all to keep on reading the book of Ephesians as we go through it. 20 minutes it takes. That's five minutes a day, four days a week. And if you were to do that the whole time that we were going through this series it would benefit you infinitely more than if you didn't. Have you ever done that? You've been hearing a sermon series preached or a study series, and you just you go through and read the book. It's short enough you can read it each and every time, whether under my preaching or Pastor Bay's or at a different church you belong to. It is, it is a game changer. At the end of that, you don't just kind of know the book. You're not just familiar with it. It's part of you. And you find God bringing up texts with just clarity of what they mean and how they apply to your life and the situation you're in in that moment. Now, I know you didn't do that this week, but maybe you'll do it for next week. And that's okay, because this week we're just looking at these two verses real quick. The greeting at the beginning. This is a letter, and just like we have a template for what letters should look like, uh, until recently, if you started typing a letter on your computer, a little paperclip wearing a necktie would pop up and say, hey, you're writing a letter. Can I fill everything in? And then you just give us the details. Because there is a, a format. In the same way, in the Greco-Roman world, these epistles, they had an epistolary format. And unlike our letters, they actually start with who the thing is from, which is better than the way our letters are. You ever opened your mail and there's like five pages? And you're like, well, who's this from? You have to go all the way to the end, and you're like, ah, oh, love and kisses, Richard Saxman. Okay, it's from Richard. But in, in the, the case of this, it's, it's more like an email, actually. We've fixed that, haven't we? With, we, with email. We interact, and you open it up, and immediately says who it's from, who it's to, what the subject is. And that's what we see here. So from, essentially, Paul the Apostle at JesusChrist.org or something. In fact, he says, this is from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. 
And that's important. He didn't have to say that. He could have just said, listen, I'm an apostle. Listen up. I have authority. I want you to listen. I want you to, to think about what I'm writing. No, by the will of God, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Not by the will of Paul. The will of Paul, the will of old Saul, was to go persecute the church, grab Christians, drag them away in chains. God's will is what came in and said, no, 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 you're going to believe. You're going to be born again. You're going to become my apostle to Israel and to the Gentiles. Same thing is true of you and of me if we are following Jesus. And you say, come on, I never used to persecute the church. I grew up in the church. Awesome, me too. And I cherish it and I love it, but apart from a miracle of God taking the dead and bringing them back to life, that won't do you any good. I often quote Charles Spurgeon. I've got a, I got, what do you, like a theology crush on him. And, 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 you know, he's such a great man, the prince of preachers. And you look at his life, and you say, okay, here's someone who was raised in the church. In fact, his grandfather, well-known uh, pastor. And, and while he was uh, a kid, he lived with his grandfather for a while. And he used to read, by the time he was six years old, for fun, he would read The Pilgrim's Progress. The most Baptist book ever. It's about how redemption and the Christian life play out. He knew sections by heart. He's like, hop on pop. No, fox and socks, forget it. Pilgrim's Progress, six years old. And yet, it wasn't until he was 17 that God grabbed him by the heart and saved him. He, we'd look at his life and we would never say he was rebellious. He was like a goody-goody. He, he, he followed the rules. This is not someone who, who was partying and drinking and carousing and all this stuff. He, he didn't even swear by, by what I can find. And yet, it wasn't until he was 17 years old that God really broke through. And this is what he says about his life before that. I must confess that I never would have been saved if I could have helped it. As long as ever I could, I rebelled and revolted and struggled against God. When he would have me to pray, I would not pray. And when I heard and the tear rolled down my cheek, I wiped it away and defied him to melt my heart. But long before I began with Christ, he began with me. Same is true of you and I. Long before you began with Christ, he was already begun with you. Long before Saul even began persecuting the church. Christ was working on him and was, was beginning to say, I'm going to pull him to myself. I'm going to draw him to myself. I'm going to, I'm going to give him a life, and he's going to be my apostle. And when we read apostle here, by the way, it's not in the general sense that you sometimes see, just meaning missionary. This is in the very formal technical sense, meaning the twelve and Paul, men who were given authority, great authority by Christ himself to teach, to rebuke, to even forgive sin with jurisdiction over all the churches. It's an office that did not outlast one generation. Kind of a transitional situation here. And so we have to bear that in mind too. When we read this, we're not just seeing someone's opinion. This is not just the wisdom of a religious guru that we can read. And I mean, these days we look back at people who lived before us and wrote and we go, oh, ugh, it's all worthless. They weren't enlightened. Just throw it in the trash. We can't be that kind of critic here because the Holy Spirit is involved because this is inspired scripture and if we will read this as those who are subject to it not those who sit in judgment over it we will greatly benefit that's the from the two is saints at ephesus.com or something right to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful to Christ Jesus not just to those who call themselves Christians but no those who are saints those who are faithful, and those who are in Christ Jesus. Hey, that's three in one. see that a lot in the Scripture, actually, if you look for it. But what does this mean? What does a saint even look like? 
Right? Is it someone who's been canonized, the devil's advocate couldn't win over the crowd, and, and they said, oh yeah, there's the miracle, there's the virtue, this person was the cream of the crop? If I told you to imagine a saint, what would you see? Would you think of someone wearing kind of a rough robe, you know, reciting creeds and praying through beads and standing in a freezing cold uh, river while they whip themselves on the back? In an ascetic fashion, would you see someone walking around in the garden of an abbey all day just doing nothing but praying serene and above the problems and ordinary things of the world, wearing a halo? Would you see someone working on the line at GM, struggling with how hard it is to breathe and how hot it is wearing a mask and how unappreciated he feels? Would you see a teacher trying really hard, saying, oh, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I can't swear at any of these kids while she tries to maintain order of 26 squirrely kids over Zoom. Would you see one of those kids who belongs to Jesus, who's been baptized into the name of Jesus, who's trying to do his or her best to learn, but also wants to go and play and laugh and do the things that kids should do? What's the picture in the Scriptures? It's a lot more like those last three than the first two. I'll tell you that. And the fact that whether in the church amongst people who know Jesus or in the world amongst people who are completely irreligious and biblically illiterate, that the most common way we use the word saint is to say, hey, I'm no saint. The fact that we think of this as kind of a, a spiritual aristocracy tells us everything we get wrong about our relationship between ourselves and our creator. Hey, I'm no saint. Now we've become the devil's advocate against ourselves. We already have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Listen to him. You are a saint. Don't say, I'm no saint. Say, I'm a saint. In fact, hey, you know how preachers do this sometimes? Say this with me. I am a saint. What does it mean then if it doesn't mean the cream, the la cream of the church, the ones that everyone looks up to and says, I'll never attain that? Well, the word saint is the word hagioi. And the word hagios just is it's an adjective. It means holy. Hagioi is plural. So it's an adjective pluralized. Like when you say, I play the blues. That's blue songs, right? Okay, I mean, the blues, an adjective pluralized. Or, you know, so, so we're talking about the holies, people who are holy, God's holy people. And you go, well, that sounds an awful lot like the cream of the crop. Really holy people? Well, what does holy mean? At its core, both in the, the New Testament Greek and the Old Testament Hebrew, it means separation. Holiness is separation. Separation from the world and its values, from the flesh and its desires. Separation to God and separation for a particular purpose. In fact, in the Old Testament, you see as they're putting together uh, the temple and before that the tabernacle, as they take the vessels, they sanctify them, which means make them holy. And they make them holy by sprinkling them with blood and oil and all, doing all these things. And it doesn't change the item. It says this is now set aside for a particular purpose. That's what a saint is. Just like for me, my toothbrush is set aside for that particular purpose. It goes in my mouth, cleans my teeth. I never use it to clean the sink. If it touches the sink, hey, we had a good run. In the trash it goes. Right? That, that, that's how I am. My, my, because it belongs to me, and I set it aside for that. If, in fact, if it bumps the faucet... We're looking at 10 minutes of cleansing time. Super hot water. We're burning through those bristles, man. And they might melt together, they might not. It's, it's touch and go. In the same way, we belong to God. 
And, and this is going to get playfully sacrilegious, but for the same reason, just to an infinitely higher degree and standard, because we belong to him and are set aside for a particular purpose, he purifies and cleanses us. We are saints. We are his holy ones. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. When we hear faithful, when I hear faithful, my first thought is people who are very loyal. Faithful per- person does not give up, doesn't go astray. And that, that sometimes is, is the meaning, is the connotation in the scriptures. But here I think we're just seeing the word having faith. It comes from the word faith. You are full of faith. You're faithful. You have re- responded in faith to the gospel. You've placed your faith in Jesus. As Calvin said, there is none who is holy who is not a believer, and none who is a believer who is not holy. If we're going to be the holy ones, the saints, it's because we have believed and God has credited that faith to us as righteousness. And we're not talking about just being full of faith in a generic sense. We're talking about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's careful to say here. And so we've got two, we've got from, have we met the main players, you do meet all the main players here, and that's always good. We just watched uh, Hamilton on Disney+. Plus. So cool. And at the very beginning, I'm like, I hope I can follow who's who, because, you know, there's a lot of people going on. In the first song, you meet everybody. And in the first scene, you see the uh, protagonist, antagonist, Aaron Burr, and Alexander Hamilton meet. And then there's Lafayette and somebody else, I don't remember. Those are just secondary characters. And you, you kind of get a sense for who is who. And that's what we've got going on here. But when we see from Paul to the Ephesians, those are the secondary characters. Okay, those aren't the most important thing going on here. The main characters of the book of Ephesians are God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This may be the most Jesus-saturated book ever written. Six chapters long, there are 90 references to Christ, Jesus, and Lord. 90 in six short chapters. Here in just the first two verses, we already have of Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, from the Lord Jesus Christ. In two verses. And, And if we belong to Jesus, that is our lives. We live our lives that are from the Lord Jesus Christ. We live them in Christ. We live them for Christ. And so those are the main characters here. Don't lose sight of that. And then we have the subject, R-E, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the greeting is usually a throwaway line, both in our letters and in an epistolary format. It would just be kyrene, which means greetings. Paul takes that. And he sort of twists it a little bit to charis, which is the Greek word for grace. He Christianizes it. Grace to you. And then he takes the Jewish uh, greeting, shalom, peace, and he adds that as well. Grace to you and peace. And and this is how he begins literally all of his letters, unless he wrote Hebrews. And, And so on one level, yeah, it's just what we expect to see. But in the book of Ephesians, this is the subject line of the letter. Grace is going to be huge here. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, undoubtedly the most famous verses from Ephesians. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of works. This is not of yourselves, etc., etc. And we see that grace is going to be the driving force. Grace to you and peace. Again, not generic. From the Lord our, our Father, uh, rather, God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He does not just want us to be happy. He doesn't just want his readers to, to find what gives them fulfillment. No, he wants them to find the specific grace and peace that comes from God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows if we're going to have either of them, let alone both of them, 
There's only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. The one thing that I missed here when we talked about the two, and those are those two little words that may or may not have been part of the original. In fact, it's even possible, some think, that because it was a circular letter, that each letter had a different city name on it, and that's why we've found some different uh, situations in different manuscripts. But whatever the case, this copy says in Ephesus. Those who are saints in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. How can you be in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus, both at the same time? Ephesus, we mentioned, was crass, wicked, idolatrous. It was commercial. It was materialistic. It was very much like our world and like our world is becoming more and more. And yet you still can be in Christ and in Ephesus. You still can be in Christ and in Lansing or New York or Rio de Janeiro or wherever you live. Now for a first century uh, Christian or Jew or, or even just your average pagan citizen, if they heard Ephesus, they would think, ooh, you're, that's in the dragon's lair. That is Sin City, the seat of idolatry and, and from a Christian point of view, the seat of government-endorsed sexual perversion and the occult. Don't forget, I mentioned as we studied through Acts that Ephesian books was shorthand for books of spells and all sorts of magic and occult and, and demonology. So how can you be in Ephesus and remain a saint, meaning you're holy and pure and separate, easy, because we are in Christ? And that is a far closer connection. Jesus says, you want to know what it's like that I'm in you and you are in me? Think about a body and the members of the body. Or think about, I am the vine and you are the branches and the life flows from me into you. The branch might be growing in Ephesus or in Lansing or in Holt, but the, the branch is growing from the vine and it is in the vine. And the life of the vine is in the branch. So there's a sort of dual citizenship here. That we are to be good citizens on earth and work for the good of the city where we live. As we read in the scriptures... And ultimately, we are to do it for the glory of God because our true citizenship is in heaven. And anyone who has dual citizenship, I know a couple of people, they're Canadian, American citizens. You know those people in the back of their mind, they think, if I had to choose, which would it be? You know, say Canada and America goes to war. You've got to decide beforehand because the thing's going to be over before you can really think about it. But that was a joke, guys. Come on, I can't see your faces, so I don't even know if you're smiling we have dual citizenship in that sense. And so we can be holy ones, the hagioi, the saints, the purified, the separate. And we can be set apart for a purpose. And that purpose says when, we, when we're separate and set apart, it doesn't mean we're isolated. Because that purpose is to be salt and light and to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Starting where God has placed you to begin to bring the gospel to all those living in darkness who hear it. We have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ with which to do that. How can we be in Ephesus or in Lansing and in Christ? I heard a great illustration once that when you go into a cave, you've got to be very careful to know about the, the chemistry of the cave because a lot of caves will have carbonic acid uh, gas and it's heavier than air so it forms and it kind of falls to the ground and it's about two feet tall, this sort of plume everywhere. If you, you walk in, you're five feet six feet tall, you're fine. But if you're bringing a dog, it's down there and it's going to slowly asphyxiate. 
We've got to make sure we're not down in the, the dirt of the world and its values, our culture and its, its religion, which is essentially self-worship. We have to make sure that we are instead upright. You ever notice in the Old Testament, it talks about those who are upright, upright and faithful, standing up straight. If you walk into that cave, you're fine as long as you're upright and your head's four feet up above that dangerous gas. And that's the journey that this letter is going to take us on. By the time we get to the very end of chapter 6, we find that our struggle, it's not against other people, like the news is trying to tell us right now that we're all supposed to be angry with each other all the time. We need to be peacemakers now. We need to work for justice now. And we need to do this with Jesus Christ being the engine behind that. Our struggle is actually against something much bigger. And our struggle is actually much more epic than the world would have us to think. It's against principalities and powers. Not against the devil's advocates as we identify them, but against the devil himself. But against the spiritual powers themselves. And it, it's okay that we are surrounded by darkness because Jesus said, I am giving you the light. In fact, you are the light. The light of the world. Walk worthy. Bringing the light with you. And knowing, yeah, the devil may have advocates all over, but you have an advocate in Christ Jesus. You are in him and he is in you. And his grace and his peace is in us all. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that we are listening to a lot of different voices telling us a lot of different things right now. We pray that the voice of your scriptures would be the clearest. That we would be well-informed, well-read people. But we remember the words of that man Spurgeon who said, visit many books, but live in the Bible. Lord, we pray that we would live in the Bible. And as we camp out for some time now in this letter from St. Paul to the Ephesians, I pray that it would have its way in our hearts, that you would renew our minds through these beautiful words as we read about mysteries revealed, as we read about what Jesus has done for us and how we then should live. Lord, we pray that we would be humbled, that we would be inspired and quickened to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in this world, to bring light into the darkness. We pray all this in his holy name. Amen.